Hey everybody, you are about to listen to a podcast that is primarily for writers and readers. And if there's one thing writers and readers both love, besides books, it's never shutting up about coffee. It's like we think we invented this stuff and we're the only ones who know about it. And that's not true. You can't really be smug about the fact that coffee fuels everything you do. Most people can say that. You can, however, be smug that you drink Gut Check Blend Espresso, the smoothest, darkest, least bitter coffee you will ever try. I can all but guarantee that if you head over to www.gutcheckpress.com coffee and order up a pound, you'll be the first one on your block to enjoy that wonderful flavor. And that is something to be smug about. Zachary Bartels is with us, the author of Playing Saints. Saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil, and uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there, they're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. Years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end. What's fascinating about the Christian market, though, is that the big five don't dominate outside of HarperCollins. Carol Award for debut novel is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay. This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. Over the course of this podcast thus far, I may have at times conveyed the idea that the traditional publishing machine is a necessary evil and nothing more, as if it solves your distribution problem, but then just creates a whole bunch more problems. I need to go on record saying that honestly couldn't be further from the truth. Well, no, it could be further from the truth, but it's certainly not the full picture. Yes, there is a frustrating element to it. On my other podcast, we often talk about publishing. It's me and Ted Clock, who has literally dozens of books under his belt from a wide variety of traditional publishers. And there was this one app where we tried to sort out how it could be that in this current publishing environment, it's now up to the author to market and promote their books. And yet when you go to the publisher's headquarters, there are multiple marketing people drawing full salary and benefits. Of course, the more you learn, the more you realize they're doing an awful lot over there. But it can be frustrating. There are also times when you go into a bookstore and find that they don't have your new release. And you'd ask them why not, but you already know the answer. It's because there are hundreds of thousands of books published each year, and this store can only hold a tiny fraction of a small percentage of that. So you tell them about your book and convince them to order it, and then you stop and think, if even with the big traditional publishing deal, I'm having to walk around pressing the flesh like an old tiny politician, one at a timing it, why am I only getting a buck a pop? If I were publishing this indie, I'd be getting more than five times that. Yeah, those moments happen. But far more moments come and often go unappreciated where the professionals at the actually established, probably publicly traded publishing company fling door after door wide open for you, allowing you to waltz right through. And this doesn't begin and end with distribution either. 
In a future episode, I'll talk about gatekeepers in general and when you need them and why you need them and when you don't need them. And in a different future episode, I'll tell you about some of the surprising doors that traditional publishing has opened for me and the amazing experiences I would have never had were it not for my contract with a big five publisher. But today, I want to talk about one thing in particular. And it's kind of a blessing in disguise, or, or maybe a double-edged sword. The last time I was on Cliff Graham's Good Battle podcast, we were talking about the hybrid author experience. All of us on the, on the podcast had gone indie and also gone with traditional publishing at one point. And Cliff asked me what was my favorite and my least favorite aspects of working with a major publisher. And I told him both questions have the same answer. Having someone edit me. Aside, no one is editing Clinch, the novel that I'm reading in these podcast episodes. No one at all. And maybe that's painfully clear, but I decided early on that you would all be my beta readers or beta listeners. Kind of seemed unfair if you weren't. And maybe it's a stupid move, but hey, it's all part of the experiment. But in traditional publishing, you have multiple levels of editing, and people other than you speak into your story. I remember with my book, The Last Con, I was so proud that I had perfectly written this book into a chiasm. Yeah, maybe I'm semi-obsessed with them. You may remember me talking about chiasms in an earlier episode, but the structure of this book was completely symmetrical, and I was so proud of that. I know no one would probably notice it, but I thought they would feel just how perfect it was put together. And then my editor said, I think we need to add a new chapter one before all this, showing the backstory, showing rather than later on telling what had happened, and I fought and fought against it. I said, no, you're going to wreck this structure, and it's blah, blah, blah. Eventually, I caved and said, okay, I'll try it and see how it feels. So I wrote a new first chapter, and I immediately realized that the book was far better with it. We needed to start with Fletcher Doyle in his prime, and then his fall, rather than meeting him while he's trying to bounce back. With my first novel, Playing Saint, the main critique I got in the developmental edit was that there simply weren't enough strong female characters. And, you know, I knew this. I'd heard this before from readers of a previous book that I'd written, and, and I'd tried to fix it. I mean, I know that I tend to write male-dominated books, and I don't think I'm alone here. Men tend, in general, to just write stories featuring men. I mean, not all male authors, but a lot of us. Look at anyone from Tolkien to Elmore Leonard to a Guy Ritchie screenplay to uh, Clive Cussler, probably, I don't, I don't, I've never really read him, or, or Ian Fleming, where women are sparse and, and they're basically tools in the story to be used to a certain end, whether a sex object or a foil to the hero or, or simply just plot contrivances that pop in and out of the story. Again, this isn't universal, but it's the ditch into which male authors are in danger of falling. While thinking through what I've written, I realized that last Christmas I came out with a little short story collection, just a couple of stories called God Rest Ye Motor City, which reprised characters from Playing Saint and The Last Con. And in those stories, I don't think there are any females. I mean none. Not the barista at the coffee shop, not the kid who gets rescued by Father Michael, none whatsoever. And that wasn't anything I set out to do. That was just me falling into the ditch. Women, on the other hand, are in danger of falling into a different ditch on the other side of the road, writing books that feature plenty of male characters, but all of them sort of acting and talking and even thinking like women. I once attended a workshop by my friend Ronnie Kendig about this very phenomenon. 
She called it, he dot 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 giggled. This was a fitting workshop at this Christian conference because I find this to be a particularly prevalent thing in Christian fiction. Anyway, when my editor said, sure, Zach, part of why we contracted you is because we want to open up the readership of Christian fiction and and to get more male readers, and the way we need to do that is by getting some new male authors. That won't happen overnight, though. The majority of the readers will be women, and you need some strong female characters to which they can relate. I said, all my female characters are strong, because nothing bores me more than a feeble, weak little woman on the page or on the screen. It's so played out. It's Yonsville. So I pointed her to the the major female characters in the book, Paige Carmichael, who basically keeps the, the main character, Parker, from imploding. She's the most capable human in the whole book. And Detective Corinne Kirkpatrick, who gets whatever she wants and yet is still loved and respected by her colleagues. Sort of a a feminist, well, also feminine and fun. And both of them, I said, hold their own and then some in this book. But she told me, our readers would like a little bit of a love interest aspect as well. And she suggested that I massively change the plot so that character X can wind up together with Parker. Now, I'm not going to spoil my own story by telling you exactly what we're talking about. You can buy the book Playing Saint for less than $10 paperback now on Amazon or or $8 for your Kindle or your Nook. But suffice to say, I didn't want to do that to the story. So I, I said in response, how about if instead you let me just add a few scenes and build a little something between Parker, this, this borderline milquetoast, uber self-conscious wannabe celebrity preacher with limp theology and his whetted finger up in the air feeling for the breeze, and Corinne, this take-no-crap female detective who's completely at home in her own skin and whose principles are as solid as they get and kind of at odds with Parker's in some ways. I liked the idea and I saw it as kind of a challenge. Can I make this believable? Can I make it look like this was my intent from the beginning rather than sort of a a fiat from my editor to have a, a romantic element to the story? And as I worked on it, very quickly it became one of my favorite aspects of the book. I polished it and polished it, and honestly, if I hadn't done this, the sequel would look nothing like it does today. Probably it wouldn't exist. Granted, at the end of the day, I added less than 5,000 words new content. There's one full chapter and a few changes here and there throughout, and it's still very much a guy-centered book with a male protagonist, a male antagonist, a male point of view for all but two scenes, but it was better for it. Editors almost always know what they're doing. Even if their reasons seem wonky, their instincts are good. But coming out of those two books, here I sat, wanting to rebel against all that editorial pressure and write something super masculine. Like, like remember when Green Day got dumped on for selling out with Dookie and, and going too pop and too soft, and so their next album was really hardcore, harder core than they'd ever really been, even before they were famous? No? Oh, well, I really wanted to do that, to go back in the the opposite direction, write something that made 42 months dry look like love comes softly. But that would have not really been me, and I don't think I could have pulled it off very well. And in retrospect, maybe the most punk rock thing I could do with my next couple releases was to have one book where chapter one starts by establishing a 47-year-old woman as the hero of the story and one of two protagonists, And a YA book, which, while having a male main character, 
could probably be described as a semi-superhero story with a semi-90s girl power theme slowly emerging throughout. And the other great thing about this is that it pushes me and stretches me as a writer. Now, writing a woman from a man's point of view is no problem. I've been seeing women from a masculine perspective for decades. Trying to get inside a woman's head, though, that's the ultimate mystery, I guess. And trying to do it without falling into stupid stereotypes and tropes and, and tired old damsel in distress scenarios, I see that that's been appealing to me all along. From Isabel and 42 Months Dry to Meg Doyle and La Bella Donna and The Last Con to Corinne Kirkpatrick in the Playing Saint books, it makes sense to give women characters some major screen time or page time or whatever and to explore a number of different aspects of their lives. And one way I've tried to do this believably is to try and combine characteristics of people in my life who I have found awesome and then fill in all the gaps with my own universal human experiences like the scientists of Jurassic Park filling in the gaps with frog DNA. Whether writing men or women, I find that to be very useful. In fact, we'll pick up with that next week, talking a bit about the craft of writing. For now, let's get back to Trent and Judith and the little town of Clinch Rock. Previously on Clinch. By the way, Brian continued, I hope I didn't come on too strong last night. Not at all, Trent answered. The stuff that happened here is fascinating. It sure is. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if you found something equally fascinating in your own house. There's no easy way to say this, Chet said. We represent a majority of the Elder Board, and we are very seriously considering removing you from the position of pastor. We'd just like to see you adopt some office hours. At Bushman's quiet insistence, the board had offered an arrangement in which their new pastor would only receive half his pastoral salary while he still served as police chief. Trenton was feeling very good about his chances here. He could leverage this natural delay while she tried to acquire any number of James Bond gadgets and use the time to redirect her to sleuthing of the historical variety. Judith pulled her phone from the pocket of her camo pants and opened YouTube, punching in, how to pick an antique desk drawer lock with her thumbs. Judith was a quick study, and it was only her third try when Trenton heard the lock turn and saw the drawer slide open. And then, they saw the money. Clinch, a novel, chapter nine. Quote, whatever you do, give it 1,000%. Kill distractions like the devils they are. Let me put it this way. While I don't advocate adding to the Bible, if I were going to round up the fruit of the Spirit to ten, I'd add tunnel vision to the list. From Insane Faith, A Guide to Extreme Christianity for the Truly Faithful, by Stephen Branding, page 19. Is that what I think it is? Trenton wanted to grab for the contents of the drawer, but stopped himself. This was Judith's big moment, and it had to collide with enough force to change her momentum. Judith reached slowly into the drawer, hands shaking, and pulled out what looked like a stack of very old paper. She laid the items down in a row along the top of the desk. First the money, just two bills, which Trenton didn't recognize and which both bore a prominent numeral 50 in the corners. He felt a wave of disappointment. A couple of outdated 50s would not help the church meet its budget or save his father any stress. Next to that, she placed a book, a bit larger in width than the bills, its blank leather cover fastened shut by a thin leather cord wrapped over itself several times. Finally, a sealed envelope with nothing written on the outside. Judith looked up at him again, her eyes dancing, waiting for his reaction. 
Open it, he said, his voice coming out with a bit of an adolescent squeak, and then he laughed. The whole thing had him feeling giddy. Without much care at all, Judith tore into the envelope and pulled out a single page of paper, which she unfolded to reveal a handwritten letter. The first thing to jump out at him was the signature at the bottom, Reverend Jeremiah Walcott. He'd spent half the morning reading letters from the late minister and quickly recognized this as another. So what's it say, he demanded. Judith squinted. I can't really read it, Trenton sighed. You're fluent in Morse code, but you can't read cursive? Shut up, she said, handing it over. I can read it, it just takes me longer. The letter was addressed, in the now familiar slant of Walcott's handwriting, to My Dear Friend in Christ. Trenton read it aloud. I choose to believe with a measure of faith that, at such a time as this letter is discovered and read, Clinch Rock Independent Church will still be going strong, this house still its parsonage, and the man reading these words my successor, for I shudder at the thought of any of this falling into the hands of the unregenerate. Perhaps you know of the recent, at least recent as I write this, controversy which has so buffeted our town these past few years of my dear friend Benjamin Cassell murdered in avarice and spite, of his assassin also put to death in a gruesome display of vengeance and, depending on how I am remembered, of my having been caught up in these affairs. Before he was murdered, Mr. Cassell informed me of his plans to donate a large sum of money, indeed beyond large, to the church for the furthering of the kingdom of God. The very morning of his untimely death, he had entrusted to me nearly $1,000 and implied that the rest of the treasure had been deposited somewhere for me to find at a later date, somewhere, in his words, beneath the fire. He had been planning to vacate his mansion and to live the remainder of his days far from here and free of the crushing weight of wealth and power, which brought such great temptation as always threatened to entice and drag away even a servant of the Most High God. He told me that I was to watch the post after his departure for a final piece of information that would arrive in a letter and clinch for me the location of the treasure. However, seemingly before he could write this final letter, Cassell went the way of all flesh, leaving me with a single clue. Beneath the fire. I searched everywhere. Under actual fireplaces and furnaces, beneath metaphorical fires, for example, the altar of the church, in the ashes of buildings that burned down while Cassell still lived, before long, I am ashamed to say, this quest became an obsession, and I spent what little I had left, both in treasure and integrity, pursuing it. Over time, this pursuit changed my character greatly, for the worse, causing me to neglect the ministry and despise my fellow man. And so, on this fourth day of August, 1895, I give it all up to the Lord, Asking him by his mercy to turn my heart of stone back into a heart of flesh, I desire, like Cassell before me, to move on and to live a quiet and ordinary life, honoring Christ. To that end, I considered burning all evidence of my search, that it too might disappear beneath the fire. However, I cannot rule out that God, in his providence, may have a time in mind when someone, perhaps you, will find this inheritance and use it to bring glory to his name. And so I am walling off this long-forgotten chamber, perhaps never to be opened again. With this letter, I leave you my diary, which contains, among other things, the details of my search, a map of each place I scoured, and two $50 banknotes, all that remains of the money given me by Mr. Cassell.
The love of money has surely been the root of bitterness and greed in my heart. I pray that you will be spared this fate. Perhaps you should do that thing for which I lacked the constitution, feed these items to the fire and forget you ever came upon them. I do not know if the treasure has already been discovered. I do not know if my friend's wicked bookkeeper, Heinrich Willick, discovered and moved the cash or gold, for I know not which form it takes, before he, having lived by the sword, died by a blow from a pike pole in my very presence. I do not know how you can save your soul while seeking the treasure. God will be your guide. To his eternal glory, the Reverend Jeremiah Walcott. He set the letter down on the desk and took a deep breath. Judith furrowed her brow. Did you write that? Is this some kind of joke? Yeah, right. And I made this old money with my printing press. He picked up the two bills. They were identical, featuring an iconic image of Washington crossing the Delaware on the left side and a portrait of a man, also Washington, in prayer on the right. Floating between them in ornate writing were the words National Bank of Elgin. He flipped one of the bills over, official-looking seals, and the words $50. Do you think this is still good? He mused. Like, is it still even money? He could feel Judith nodding from over his shoulder. Well, yeah, if it's a banknote. That's how money got started, right? Banks would issue these little certificates, and you could bring them in and trade them for that much gold. I think if this bank is still around, you should be able to walk right in and demand $100 worth tomorrow. Trenton chuckled. <laughs> That'd be hilarious. But really, I mean, what do you think we could get for these? They belong to the church. I really don't know. She was still behind him, and he could feel her breath. It was nice. My crazy uncle Denny spent years collecting all this Confederate money, she said. Yes, he was a total racist, so don't ask. Anyway, after he died, my dad tried to unload like $3,000 worth, and he could only get like 200 bucks. She picked up the diary and asked, Do you mind? Go for it, Trent said. She unwound the leather cord and riffled through the book, maybe 500 pages long and about two-thirds full. Yikes. Can you read this? She asked, flipping back to a page full of writing. Trenton accepted the book and squinted at the script. It was smaller than the writing in the letter by a good deal, also faded and smudged, like perhaps the book was composed of inferior paper, or maybe the reverend had a habit of closing the diary before the ink had dried, or perhaps he was just saving his most careful penmanship for correspondence. At any rate, it took him three times longer to read through a single page of the diary than one of the letters, and it just seemed to be a log of all the minister had done that day. Visited the Widow Doan, prepared sermon for West Lumber Camp, met with baptismal candidates. It went on and on. Judith had grown bored and was examining the map spread across most of the back wall. It was about six feet square, representing downtown Clinch Rock and some of the surrounding land. Throughout, there were small red icons, little tongues of fire here and there, apparently marking off places where Walcott had searched for the money his church had coming. They were both engrossed in the map when Trent's cell phone bleeped. He opened the text message. Hey, my dad's ordering from Toppet. Wants to know if we're hungry. Sure, Judith said, her eyes still glued to the map. He knows what I like. Barf. Pineapple. He texted back. Sounds good. Let me know when it gets here. She craned her head back toward Trenton. Are we telling him about this stuff? Hmm. Trenton had been keeping dad in the dark, but also in his back pocket in all this. He could be a good ally in talking some sense into Judith the superhero, but it was looking like he may not need him. Judith was all in here. He could see that. And it was probably best to keep it between the two of them. 
I mean, Batman has Commissioner Gordon and everything, Judith said, but I wonder if Adam and I are too close already, you know? Yeah, let's not add to his concerns. A familiar weight returned to Trent's spirit. She was still thinking in superhero terms. He had to hook her more completely and reel her in, and he knew exactly how. He leaned back against the desk and said, Wait till you hear the story Zoe's dad told me the other night. Judith sat in total silence while Trenton related the events surrounding the murder of Benjamin Cassell, the Crown Fire Boys, and the missing money. Then she let loose with a barrage of questions before demanding that he reread the letter. Right as they finished, Trent's dad called down to say the pizza had arrived. So that's what they're looking for, she whispered as they climbed the steps. I told you, it's a conspiracy. Trenton didn't answer. Toppet, which stood for the only pizza place in town, was known less for quality of their pizza than for being, well, the only pizza place in town. But it was hot, and it was pizza, and it offered a welcome opportunity to connect with his dad. And having the three of them together again after at least three months apart was like a family reunion. Sure, nothing would stop the two of them from tapping messages to each other throughout dinner, but the jealousy was gone now, overcome by a cloud of nostalgia. On a scale of total chaos to all's right in the world, things were moving in the right direction. Dad was feeling like his old carefree self, king of corny jokes and bad impressions, and Judith, whether she knew it or not, was being expertly corralled away from a potentially dangerous and humiliating obsession into one that, quite frankly, had Trent just as excited. When his dad suggested a round of Scrabble, an old favorite in the Marsh home, they couldn't say no. In keeping with their tradition, his dad played all sorts of proper nouns and iffy terms, which Judith challenged endlessly, this time adding a number of Greek words to the mix. He had just added OS to the end of the word angel, explaining that angelos was the Greek word behind the English and therefore acceptable when the doorbell rang. Trent's dad excused himself from the dining room table covered in letters and disappeared into the living room. Well, hello, Laurie, he heard him say. Laurie Farmer, the church treasurer. She was a few years younger than the new pastor, and very pretty, and when she had come over once before, Trenton had hoped it might be the beginning of something between the two of them. But no, it had been bad news about the church's finances, as it probably was again tonight. Trent held his breath and tried not to listen in on the conversation. If only the treasurer knew where to find the treasure. I thought you should hear this from me first, she was saying. It's not good. I've got to decide whether to pay the water bill, the electric bill, or our missionaries in Kenya. God will provide, Adam said. Yes, I know, he always does. Between you and me, we've been squeaking by like this for a few years. But we've lost some big givers in the past few months. We're barely making ends meet with your current pay scale. I, I really don't see how we can start paying you a full salary and still stay afloat. And, Pastor, we're going to need to re-roof the church soon, and it's going to cost... $25,000 at least. I'm kind of afraid we're going to have to sell the parsonage at that point. Trenton clicked on the old AM radio on the kitchen counter. He shouldn't be hearing this. He didn't want to hear it. When he slumped back into his seat, Judith reached over and squeezed his hand. Don't worry. We're going to find that money, she said. I promise. They sat there for a few minutes, not saying anything, listening to the Tigers game. When his dad returned, his countenance had changed entirely. Sorry, kids, he said. I've got a lot of work I should be catching up on. But this has been fun. We should do it again, some... He trailed off as he walked out of the room toward his home office. Judith dug a moleskin notebook out of her bag. 
Let's go outside, she said. The two of them sat on Trenton's old tire swing, well into the night, brainstorming possible fires beneath which the treasure might be hidden. Even after deciding to double-check where Walcott had already looked, they still ran dry after 14, and so decided to take the Iron Horse downtown, looking for historic buildings marked with the date of 1895 or earlier. They found eight of them. I think we could have saved ourselves a trip, Trenton said, surveying their list. These are all on the map that Walcott left us. Judith nodded. You know what else is on the map? Every single building that's been broken into. Once again, sleep eluded Trenton Marsh. But tonight he wasted no time tossing and turning. Instead, he clicked on his reading lamp and began flipping through Walcott's diary. He had meant to send it with Judith, but she dropped him off just before his curfew and took off in her usual way, spitting dirt out from behind her rear wheel. Ten pages in, and Trenton fell under the grip of an enormous yawn. For a record of treachery and hidden treasure, this may have been the dullest document he had ever laid eyes on. Desperate for some action, he flipped to the very last entry. It was dated August 5, 1895, and consisted of just one line. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to thy blood. Trenton clicked off the light and closed his eyes. He felt a sense of peace at reading those words and wondered what it was like for a man possessed by such a relentless pursuit to just give it up all at once. He imagined it was a bit like the way his dad had felt tonight, when for just a couple hours, he forgot that he was wearing way too many hats, stretched thin by each and every one of them. Then again, Walcott had probably gone back to his crazy schedule of preaching to the lumberjacks and miners in addition to his ordinary ministerial, wait, the old copper mine. Cassell had not owned the mine outright, but was a heavy investor in it. Brian Green had mentioned that the night before. He rushed into the secret room and clicked on the trouble light. He was right. All of the little flame indicators on Walcott's map were within the town limits of Clinch Rock. The mine, however, was a good five miles east of the border. And as for beneath the fire, didn't mines have huge smelting furnaces? Could the money be hidden beneath? Suddenly very awake, he grabbed his laptop and looked up the Ashton Copper Mine on Wikipedia. A large notice announced that this article, quote, needed help and was a stub, which apparently meant it wasn't a real article. Trenton read the short paragraph. The Ashton Copper Mine, a conglomerate mine in Lake County, Michigan, is the only copper mine in the Lower Peninsula. It was active from 1881 through 1893 under the joint ownership of the Goodwin and Stiles Mining Company and several wealthy local prospectors. The mine was founded when a group of Michigan lumber barons, hoping to replicate the Keweenaw copper boom and diversify their holdings, hired a team of geologic surveyors to locate reserves of precious metals nearby. Their only find was a very sparse deposit, which became the Ashton Mine. While copper mining in the Upper Peninsula boomed from 1845 until 1887, the Ashton Mine was never profitable. In 2016, a brave young woman spent a weekend living in a tunnel of the mine on a dare, Citation needed. Trenton chuckled. Obviously, Judith had added that last line. Not much help, though. On a whim, he did an image search for Oxgoad, which he had been meaning to look up ever since Judith came out of left field with the term. Huh. It was a long-handed wooden spear with a blunted end and a second curved spike branching off the first. He clicked through a few more pictures, some of them looking incredibly deadly with metal spikes and blades. 
Trenton could see how, in the hands of a biblical hero, it might rack up quite a body count. What he couldn't understand is how anyone in her right mind might consider carrying one of these things out into the not-so-mean streets of Clinch Rock to battle the forces of darkness. He put the laptop to sleep and flopped back down on his bed. In the dark, his mind wandered here and there, as it was wont to do. He thought about dinner with Dad, the desk and its contents, the money and its mystery— and he thought way back to that morning, reading through a stack of letters at the Cassell house. Somehow it felt like two weeks ago. As he drifted off to sleep, he pictured Zoe's face reflected in the glass as she leaned her head against his shoulder that morning. Only, it wasn't Zoe's face he saw. It was Judith's. Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2017, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel. Copyright 2017, Gutcheck Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me by email at zach at zacharybartles.com. That's Zach with an H, like God intended. Or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you might want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Good.